Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio, as I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you today? Terrific, thanks. Thanks, Steve. So, um, as part of a a series of podcasts, we we like to ask um, reporters from the Chronicle for Higher Education uh, to join us and to talk about issues related to uh, generally to higher education. And we found an article that particularly struck our fancy, and it, it has to do um, with uh, uh, with general education, which we and I think nearly every university struggles with. And so, so we wanted to invite that author to come and join us on the podcast today. Why don't you introduce her, Scott? Thanks, Steve. Uh, We are delighted to welcome with us today Beth McMurtry, a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Um, Welcome, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so so much. It's great to be here. And I think that you're uh, talking to us from your office in Washington, D.C.? That's right. How is everything back in D.C. today? Uh, Right now it's calm, which uh, is probably... Uh, unusual here in, in Washington. I'm sure there'll be some sort of a scandal or two to break in the next day or so. <laughs> <laughs> Never stays calm for long. <laughs> Especially in a world where people make money if it's not calm. It needs to, yes. yeah, <laughs> got to have something to report on. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful place for us to visit. So many interesting things and activity going on back there. Uh, but it does seem to be a slightly more crisis-prone place lately than it has on average. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the well, I, I think any reporter can say this. The news cycle has just kind of spun out of control. You know, whether you're covering higher education and, you know, the latest uh, free speech or Me Too crisis or covering Washington politics, which is really kind of is now the breakneck speed. Well, we sure appreciate you joining with us. You wrote... Uh, this article in the Chronicle of Higher Education that we we feel like we should be entitled to uh, some special privilege since we get about 500 of the Chronicles delivered to every office <laughs> we have on lots campus. Of subscriptions. That's right. <laughs> I, I don't actually know how many there are, but everybody's a got bunch. one on their desk. Yeah. It's, uh, it's such a valuable resource, and we were fascinated with your discussion about fixing the courses everyone loves to hate. Um, what led you into this um, um, little study and writing about? And and how did you get first? How did you get where you are there at oh, the Chronicle? Yeah. yeah, tell tell us a little bit about that, and then let's let's get into the article. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I've, I've worked at the Chronicle for a very long time. I've been here uh, twenty years. Um, so I've covered in those twenty years. I've covered all sorts of things in higher education. I think I started out covering religious colleges and accreditation. Um, for, for many years, I was the, uh, the international editor, and I oversaw our international news coverage 
Um, and that was a, a great gig. I got to travel to China and India and, and a number of other countries to look at their higher education systems and how they were evolving. Um, and also got to reflect on kind of the increasing internationalization of American colleges and universities. Um, when I went back to reporting, um, I, I, I think I started uh, back in writing about uh, research and then I've also written about diversity issues, diversity challenges in hiring. I've written about um, campus culture, you know, binge drinking, uh, free speech issues, fraternities. Um, but in all of those years, probably for 18 years or so, I never wrote about teaching. You know, one of the most central um, uh, uh, jobs of higher education Um so in the last couple of years, I've written, uh, my focus has been on teaching and learning and what happens inside the classroom and adjacent to the classroom. Um, I've, and I've written uh, sort of a, a report that, that um, came out a couple of years ago in the future of learning that included everything from the rise of educational technologies to um, the, the changes, the fundamental changes in the way um, some teaching and learning is happening, you know, the move toward more active classrooms. I've written about reforms in general education. Um, a lot of this ties in, as you can imagine, to the growing concerns around uh, student success, around the fact that we haven't really moved the needle too much in terms of uh, graduation rates across the country and how that's um, increasingly problematic as the cost of college uh, increases and as we uh, see an increasingly diverse uh, student body, um, particularly students, uh, more students coming in from uh, who are first gen or from uh, lower income families. Um, so that's a long wind up to say that this, this particular story that I did on um, what I call fixing the courses that everybody loves to hate, those large gateway or foundational courses, um, was there was a particular reason in that we can get into that the University of Michigan is, has really taken this on in a big way. But the more general reason is these are these courses are are um, central to the lives of so many college students. Maybe maybe not sort of at the small liberal arts colleges, but at these large regional uh, or um, large public institutions where students have to go through, you know, introduction to biology, introduction to economics, um, you know, the, that math class that you have to take, they're, they're funneled through these courses. And these courses are not necessarily particularly well designed or designed for student success. So if that's your first encounter with college and it's not a good one, um, what responsibility does the college have to fix those courses, to make them better taught to make uh, students uh, outcome to improve student outcomes, particularly among um, the more disadvantaged students. So that that's that's kind of what prompted me to, to dive into that story. So do you mind if I quote some of your article back to you for just a second? Because I think it's just such great writing. Oh, sure. Go ahead. So the opening paragraphs of this are inside a squat brick and concrete building here at the University of Michigan, about 300 freshmen gather on a gray Monday morning for their introductory biology class. Under fluorescent lights, Matthew Chapman, mic'd up and on his second class of the day, speaks quickly as slides flash on the screen behind him in rapid succession. He has a lot to cover today, and most of his time is spent in a fast-paced lecture. Halfway through the hour-long class, some students start to tune out. They scroll through their phones, they bounce their legs, stare blankly ahead. 
One opens a Google Doc to work on a cover letter. Large introductory courses like this are a staple of the undergraduate experience. They funnel thousands of students each year through biology, economics, math, and psychology, serving as gateways to dozens of majors. And this is what you've just said, and I that paints such a... <laughs> Uh, perfect and also gloomy picture of a 300-person lecture class. And and having been in that situation myself, not with 300, but 100 students, you, you learn very quickly that you're all of a sudden lecturing to the first two rows and the other 10 rows are doing something else. Yeah, I have tremendous empathy to, uh, for the faculty members who, who um, teach these courses. You know, and I talked to a number of them when I went to um, to Ann Arbor. To, to focus in on um, this project that the University of Michigan has going, they know what the problems are in their courses. I mean, they they can see the, the faces of the students, uh, you know, uh, tuning out. Um, they're under tremendous pressure in some in some kinds of courses, particularly STEM courses, to to get through a lot of content. And in other courses, um, you know, ones that are more interdisciplinary, I think they struggle with this identity crisis of what exactly am I supposed to be teaching these students? Am I supposed to teach them a bunch of content? Am I supposed to teach them sort of uh, potential career outcomes or career paths for them? I'm, is this supposed to be an introduction to college? Uh, and so a lot of these classes can be kind of disjointed as well. And sometimes you don't even know who your students are. I mean, when you have 300 students in the class, unless you have like super duper learning analytics and dashboards and things like that, you probably are guessing at where your students are in terms of the knowledge they come in with. And you're, you certainly don't know their mindset, like what they want to get out of the course. And so it's, um, I can imagine, you know, what must it be like to stand up in front of that, front, in front of that audience and, and just have to kind of not wing it, but but make assumptions about who these students are and how best to reach them. Yeah, the the vision of biology flashes in my mind because um, I read recently, and I've asked our biology faculty members here, some of them anyway, um, this same question, and that is that um, there are more new terms introduced to a student in the first biology class than there are in the first French class. And uh, yeah. if you're trying to get somebody excited about a subject, that doesn't seem to be the way to do it. Yeah, and I know that um, the conversations that, uh, say, at a place like Michigan, they're having, uh, and, and other other campuses too, certainly a lot of people are thinking about these gateway courses, is what do students actually need to know in that introduction, introductory class? You know, how much biology do they need? To lay the foundation for the next level. Um, and I don't know that they know the answer to that. I do think there's a lot of pressure to, to cover a lot of turf, again, particularly in these STEM courses. But if it's a content dump, then what are you giving up? You know, uh, how much time are you devoting to kind of um, thinking like a scientist or, or problem solving or taking this, this, uh, this idea or concept or formula that you learned and then applying it in a new setting. Um, so one thing professors are thinking about is, well, if we reduce the content, we might have a little bit more time to, to focus on those other skills. Um, and, 
some in some instances, you know, professors are actually trying to shift to a more active learning classroom where there's very little lecturing going on, and maybe maybe the students are kind of watching videos in advance or reading in advance, and then they're coming to the class, and they're basically spending the majority of their time working through problems um, to develop those skills, to develop kind of those muscles um, that will better prepare them for the um, the next level of of these courses, which are only going to get more challenging, obviously, and, and not less. But there's a lot. There's a lot at play. There's a lot to think about there when you're thinking about what do you want students to get out of these courses, and how best can you teach them the skills that they need to succeed in college. Yeah, and one of the main issues here that we're uh, talking about is is that in, in these general education courses, this is the front door to higher education. So if we if we're trying to bring in, as you described, we're trying to bring in these uh, first-generation students. We're trying to bring in students who have never been to college, and their parents haven't, and they may or may not have good support at home. If the first classes that they uh, attend are large auditorium classes where the teacher's just moving 100 miles an hour, then that's that really doesn't bode well to keeping them in, helping yeah. them move to graduate. and. One of my, um, we're, we're fortunate here at, at Southern Utah University because we really don't have auditoriums. So our general education classes are pretty small. I think yeah. that we have a few that may have 90 students in them, but we, most of them are pretty small. But, yeah. but um, it seems like possibly one of the breakdowns is, and uh, as you've alluded to, Beth, that if the faculty member feels like she has to prepare the students for the next class, um, maybe that's a course that should be required for a major, but that's not general education. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a lot going on in these gateway courses, and maybe one thing we could talk a little bit about is how there are different kinds of gateway courses, right? There's there's one that really does very much lead into the major, you know, and, and like, you know, that introductory physics course, for example, the students in there aren't probably taking it to fill a genetic requirement. They're taking it because they want to be engineers. Yep, that's right. Um, or possibly physics majors. Um, and then you have another type of gateway course, which might be a little bit more interdisciplinary or have kind of broader goals. I mean, two of the ones that I looked at when I was at Michigan um, were an introduction to public health and then a couple of intro to business courses. And in both of those cases, these were kind of, they were introducing students to, to the major, but they were also trying to develop the skills that they would need to succeed. So for example, in the business school, they just recently started offering a 100-level and a 200-level course to students. They used to come in their junior year, but they decided to kind of start it up a little bit earlier. And the business school there is pretty competitive, and so they wanted to introduce the concept of teamwork early on. So one of the courses that went through this, um, what Michigan calls the Foundational Course Initiative, um, they radically rechanged this course. That It used to be kind of a collection of topics. You know, you might talk about accounting one week, finance the other week, production a third week, and it didn't really add up to anything. Um, and instead, they, they switched to this um, 
way of teaching and learning in which the students had to come kind of do everything in, in teams. They had to collaborate on projects and on ideas so they could kind of train them to think collaboratively as they moved more deeply into the business, uh, the business major. And in, in public health, they, they went through the same sort of process. Well, you know, what are we doing? We're, we're talking about, you know, tobacco one week and we're talking about obesity the next week, but what do these students really want? They don't want to just go take a deep dive onto a topic. They want to understand what is what is the role of somebody in public health to tackle these issues. And so they changed that course, or they I should say they're changing because this is a, a work in progress at Michigan. They're changing that course around so there's more of a conversation around why is it that there is an obesity crisis in the U.S. and what are the different roles that policymakers or, or uh, med- the medical community might play in that? Or if you're talking about smoking versus vaping, you know, what are the regulatory issues around that? And so students can start thinking uh, across topics and start thinking more like coherently and, and uh, cohesively about the role of public health in the larger world as opposed to oh, today we're going to talk about obesity, so I have to memorize a bunch of facts about why there's an obesity epidemic in the U.S. And that ties into, I think, this broader conversation that's happening in higher education around, is gen ed, again, just kind of a menu of courses, like, oh, you get a little taste of history and a little taste of political science, or do you really want to teach students how to think in different ways so they can understand how a historian might approach a problem versus um, a scientist? And those are very different ways of thinking. And how do you teach those habits of mind? How do you teach those different approaches to a problem in gen ed? I, I think it's a really interesting issue. I, I'd be curious to know if, if you all have kind of tackled that on your campus and undergone a kind of a fundamental restructuring of gen ed in, any, in, in those sorts of ways. So we've been experimenting with general ed, and, and one of our favorite experiments, um, one of at least from my perspective, is um, taking every general education class and creating a theme, and then having those classes feed into that theme. So we're we happen to be um, surrounded by national parks, and so one of them was the national parks, and and we taught geology as it related to these national parks and American government as it related to, um, you know, how the processes for creating a park and wilderness areas and public lands generally and water and all those kinds of things. So that every class um, kind of fed into that topic. And it became what kind of looked like one class. The, The challenge, it's a fabulous class and the students love it and the teachers love it. But you end up with um, a large number of teachers teaching. Um, a kind very of small number of classes. Very small students. number, yeah. yeah. And and a lot of our students show up with some of their general education earned, and they don't want to have to take a class over again. And this is really a cohort of the whole process. So that's one of the um, things we've done. But we've we need to take this more seriously. We need to find ways to 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 help. My favorite story about general ed, and I've said this um, probably too many times, um, but my one of my daughters came home from school and she was assigned a certain topic in her research writing general education class. And the topic was very interesting to me. It wasn't interesting to her at all. 
And I just said, this will be a lot of fun for you and I to do this together. I'd be so happy to help you. And she says, no, I'm not interested in it, so I'm not going to put any effort into it. Hmm. Thanks, Dad, but no thanks. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, we have to make it seem relevant and important to them. And if we do, then they'll put in more effort and they'll do a better job and they'll learn more. Yeah, that's 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 got to be the first step is finding a way. And I, and I think your description of what's happening in Michigan is a great uh, description of that. We're not just giving them knowledge about something. We're talking to them about how how this works, you know. And, you know, I, I have here's another another story I've related too many times. So apologies. I'm going to follow up. Scott's often told the story with my own. Uh, so my experience is as a music professor, because I was a music undergraduate major, um, I, musicians always have gen ed to do in their in their last semester of their senior year because we've we've been so busy taking all the music classes. So my advisor said, "Hey, there's a class um, taught by this crazy guy over in physics called the Physics of Hi-Fi." That tells you how old I am. That's when people still referred to stereo equipment as hi-fi. But anyway, um, you should go take this class. Other music majors have succeeded in this class. And so I went and took this physics class. And it was it was my science uh, distribution class, I guess. And uh, it changed my life. I had never, prior to that time, thought of music as a science, ever. And... Uh, uh, and in many ways, despite the fact that I went on to get a master's degree and a doctorate in very traditional, uh, you know, choral music and conducting, in many ways, that class continues to inform what I do on a daily basis. You know, I started a master's degree program here in music technology. I would never have imagined mu music technology being of any interest to me until I took that class. And within a couple of weeks, I'd gone out and bought an old four-track tape recorder back in the days when we had tape recorders. And 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 it has done, that one general ed class has done as much to inform what my future job life has been as all of my other training at a very, very high and narrow level has at graduate school. And so, so that one class really piqued my interest in a way that I think we're all looking for in general ed classes to, to, to you know, I've I became a lifelong devotee of of thinking about music in alternate ways, despite the fact that the class really was a physics class. It got me thinking differently about the way I interact with the world. And I'm, I'm guessing that that professor started out or, or got you all interested in that topic by thinking big and, and broad, right? Of, Not of immediately... Course diving into the technical details and he really was he really yeah. was crazy i mean he would blow stuff up with sound waves and you know it's just yeah. it was that fun kind of uh class to let's go see what he's going to do today um uh, sort of a thing and and so i mean it, a full professor a very gifted teacher long time on the faculty who just loved music was a was he himself a an amateur musician and loved the intersection of 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 physics and music, and so I, I've I read it with some interest your your article about that. Those those types of courses that are interdisciplinary, that are not the traditional maybe gateway courses, but but are the are hey 
let's do anatomy for dancers or let's do let's do something that will get students thinking of, from one area thinking about what they're going to do with their lives in a different way. Well, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here to kind of unpack. I mean, I think one of the one of them is like this tension between, oh, should an introductory course um, start out with the big questions that get people interested in that discipline in the first place? You yep. know, so yep. it could be sure. like an environment, like you know, an environmental class that focuses on climate change. Or should they be, as has been traditionally thought, you know, laying the groundwork to so doing kind of almost like the grunt work of the major? You've got to, you know, you need the building blocks. And I think too many of these introductory courses do kind of go in deep too quickly, and then students don't understand how or what how they're what their learning relates to kind of these bigger questions that might have gotten them interested in in the major in the first place, and you end up losing a lot of people. So what I'm seeing now, too, is is what you're talking about, Scott, is people rethinking gen ed uh, courses to focus on those big questions, to get students excited, get them excited first. And then once you've gotten them hooked and wanting to pursue the answers to these big questions, these broad challenges, they have a reason for sticking with this. And then they're willing to kind of dive into the, the nitty gritty of, of the discipline. I mean, because you have to teach that foundational stuff at some point but maybe you kind of flip the order um a little bit so you're not diving into it right away before you've even hooked the students on why they would want to study this stuff in the first place right if we if we started every elementary school kid out with art history before they could start drawing pictures nobody would be drawing pictures yeah I mean, w what we do is, is we give them a pencil and a crayon and, and um, finger paints and, and they just explore and have fun and it gets them excited about art and, and that leads them on. I, um, my dream of a biology class would be that the students show up the first day and the teacher says, okay, let's go for a walk. And they walk outside and find some water and grab um, some of it and bring it back in and start looking at it. And, and then you go from there. Um, it also seems to me, though, for that to work, you need to get your best teachers in front of the youngest students, right? They need to, to understand the value of teaching introductory courses. Um, I don't know if that's been a challenge for you, but I do certainly hear from people at different campuses that um, not everybody wants to do that, right? Um, if you've right. been there a long time, maybe you'd prefer to teach the juniors and seniors or the grad students. You'd prefer to teach your small seminar course that you don't really want to stand in front of two or three hundred students and teach that intro course but for some co colleges that where they've made that commitment it, se it seems to be paying off or at least the early signs are, are good that, that, that they're drawing maybe they're not drawing more students into say a history major an English major but they're getting them to take another course another couple of courses getting them at least a little bit excited to learn more in that discipline yeah, I think most. I think I think a lot of. Uh, I don't know if I should use the word most, but there are certainly a lot of faculty members who prefer to teach the upper division courses because everybody in the class is in love with the subject from the beginning. <clears throat> and uh, and sometimes they end up saying, for the newest, least experienced faculty members, you have to teach the general education courses, but. But we also find a lot of faculty who say, no, those general education courses are our best opportunity to recruit students into the major. So we want the very best to teach these general education classes. So it's mixed. I think it's, I think it's quite mixed. But 
you're absolutely right. I, I remember um, I had a student working in my office as an intern, and he finished his bachelor's degree, got a internship or fellowship, whatever, whatever it specifically was for him, um, but was admitted into a um, graduate program at a research university, and part of it was that he would be teaching the general education class. And I remember thinking, there is no way that this guy's prepared to teach a general education class at a at a highly respected research right. university. R1 he's just university. he's just barely finished his bachelor's degree. <laughs> one one thing too that I, I I'm curious to to track that's kind of related to all this is this concept of kind of collaborative course design, and by that I mean making courses um, communal property, like making them the the property and responsibility of an entire department. So people tell me that when they can get departments to think this way, that it's everybody's responsibility that these introductory courses are well-designed and well-taught, and they can understand the reasons why a well-designed course or a poorly designed course is going to have the outcomes that it has. You get more faculty buy-in because they start to connect the dots, right? They start to understand why um, students aren't coming into their two and 300 level courses better prepared it's because that intro course wasn't very well designed or they might um they they might be missing an opportunity to talk about career paths to those those first semester freshmen or study skills or or any number of things um if they just thought more deeply about the connections between these things and how they are so deeply connected and and the success in your two or three hundred level course is really rests on how well you did in, in that foundational course when I was at Michigan, um, I talked to some folks who were um, had redesigned kind of an, an introduction to the to engineering course that had been taught for years. It was intended to be a broad survey course, you know, for those students who weren't sure if they wanted to do mechanical or civil or electrical. Um, it had been very poorly designed and taught to the point where, you know, it's like, oh, it's your turn. You go talk about the mechanical engineering major and you'd have a professor come in and just basically list the, the degree requirements. And if you're 17, 18, that's not what you want to know. You want to know what does a mechanical engineer do, right? And right. Um, what kinds of outside internships or research or study abroad, you know, might be available to me if, if I want to get a career in X or Y or Z. And it wasn't until they kind of surveyed not just the students in these courses to see how dissatisfied they were, but also talk to the faculty members in that, in throughout the college about what did they want? What did they, how did they want the progression to go for, for students in the college that they began to see how, how they needed to, to all buy into a better designed and better taught course and how they needed to start talking to their students, even if they weren't teaching that one particular course, they needed to start talking to their students earlier on to build those bridges to, to the next level of the major. And so, you, I mean, every, in other words, everybody is happier when everybody's kind of paying attention to this stuff as opposed to saying, oh, that's somebody else's problem. The more collaborative we are, the better everything is. It's amazing how much uh, quality we can improve something by just bringing in different people that have a different view of it. <laughs> um, makes a massive difference. I had a. I wondered. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I, I'm just curious if you have a sense that faculty are starting to think differently about that. You know, I mean, historically, um, 
you know, the classroom was seen as the professor's turf. Nobody could really come in and, and tell them how to teach that course or what to teach or whatever. Are you seeing more openness to um, to thinking collectively about, about these issues that we're talking about? I think if the suggestions are coming from colleagues, yes. If they're coming from administrators, no. Yeah. Um, that's an overgeneralization. Uh, but I think that... Um, that uh, we've got lots of examples. I I would say here the most happy faculty that we've got, or at least they're the happiest with what they're doing, are those that are collaborating with other faculty members on putting together these kind of courses. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, everybody so they're making that, that go out and evangelize to others yeah, potentially. Everybody that I've talked to that's been involved in a in a course that's um, that involves different disciplines coming together to address one of these big questions. Uh, they've they've said it's been one of the best experiences of their teaching careers. It's so interesting for them. It's interesting for them. It's yeah. not it's not the same old thing that they're just repeating over and over and over again. They get to think and engage, and the more interesting it is to the faculty members, the more interesting is everybody else. You mentioned in your article that some some general ed classes serve the uh, serve the purpose of weeding out those that are not going to make it in the major. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, we used to I used to teach a music theory class that was very much like that. And I found I found though that if I uh, did as you suggest, if I I used to call it talk to the pros. So on every other Friday, I would. I would try to make it so that someone would join us by Skype who used music theory every day in what they did. And these were film composers and other people that I just knew from my years in the business. And, and I found that, that um, not only did attendance go up on those Fridays, and they just were more present, but that students actually began to imagine that that music theory might have some application to their lives and they began to take it just a little bit more seriously and I and I it, we we had data that showed that when we were doing that we had fewer students drop out of of music as a major because um, even though the class was hard for them and they may have been weeded out in previous iterations of that class that in fact, if they could be shown why this was, it was hard for them, but why it was worthwhile because you're going to use this for the rest of your life, that 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 applicability factor was was a big indicator as to whether or not they would make, stay in the major or or continue to be interested in the major. Yeah, it's this whole idea of I guess self-directed learning. When the student sees the reason for for studying hard, they they will. Um, and I, I find that fascinating. You know, I think there's this kind of false debate between like um, this idea that college should be teaching you practical skills or college should be teaching you how to think and give you a broad-based education. I mean, I mean, I think what students really are asking for aren't so much, you know, teach me how to code, but teach me why this is, why this matters, right? Teach me why this is relevant. And some of the, the teaching evangelists I've heard speak at various conferences and things really encourage professors to think about students in this way. You know, they're, they're not 
questions. They're not really just asking what's on the test so I can get an A. I mean, certainly some students are, you know, but so they, they're really asking these bigger, broader questions about why should I care? Where is this all headed? How does this all connect together? Um, and so if you can make that explicit, if you can sort of explain to students, you know, we're going to be talking about this one week and not the other week. And I'm going to be asking you to write about this that, or other thing. Or I'm going to be asking you to do this kind of open-ended project. And this is the direction we're headed in. I think it just gives students a, a story or a sense of coherence. And then that then can be kind of the motivator to do the hard work or to do kind of the scary work or the uncertain work because they have they're, they're, there's, they have faith that it's going to lead somewhere. So it's not necessarily, oh, just teach me a bunch of skills so I can get a job, right? It's, it's, it's understanding that there's a reason that you're in that course and that, that learning matters. And to, and here's why it matters. Here's how you might be able to apply it later. That yeah. I've learned as a parent that the because I said so method is one of the least effective methods of motivating yeah. children. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, we very often teach the because I said so method uh, without yeah. making it, it clear why why we're doing what we're doing. And in this generation, you know, Gen Z, as they call it, it's an interesting one. They're 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 quite practical they're they're kind of skeptical they're very comfortable with being self-taught you know they learn a lot of stuff through through youtube and other means um they don't necessarily assume the teacher has all the answers um so they, they come they're they're challenging them in a, in a bit in a way saying you know explain to me why i should care and and i think you know a good teacher should be able to do that right they should be able to stop and say this stuff does matter. It might not, you know, give you the, the you know, a, a concrete skill to get a job right out of college, but it's going to matter in the long run that that you um, that you understand American history or that you understand basic scientific principles or that you're good at kind of figuring your way through a problem. Um, I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong or uh, uh, transactional about that kind of approach, but I, I do think I, I I see these tensions. I'm sure you all see these as well in, in these national debates about what is college for. I think there's a way to bridge those those two. If there if there are in fact two camps about what is college for, I think there's a way to bridge that um, in a way that doesn't have to be so adversarial between like skills and critical thinking. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's got to be about all of those things. It's got to be about the practical skills and the big thinking. It's got to include them both. Yeah. Um, but it takes a lot of work. I mean, you have to really think carefully about what you're teaching and how you're teaching. And I mean, that's a whole other conversation about how much colleges actually invest in teaching and in and curriculum design. Um, you know, you talk to a lot of faculty members and they say, I'd like to teach better. I'd like to think about redesigning my course, but I don't have the time or you know, when it comes when I'm coming up for promotion and tenure, it's not what they look at. They look at my research, and or or maybe a college doesn't really have the budget to invest in in. You know, Michigan's spending five million dollars on this project, right, to redesign thirty courses. How many colleges have that kind of money to invest in instructional designers and data analytics and educational technology and things like that? But I'm not sure how you. I think you can do it on a shoestring, but you just have to kind of prioritize um, teaching in a way that maybe a lot of colleges don't quite. 
Yeah, and, and once we rec- and once we remember, we've said this before, but once we remember that maybe the most important year of college is the first year, um, because once the student gets it and understands how it's going and becomes familiar and builds their relationships and they get to know the faculty and other students and everything, that that first year is the most important year. And so it's worth spending the effort to make that first year spectacular. And that's all those foundational courses, general education courses. Um, That ought to be the heart of where we go. Once a student gets to become a junior and a senior, hopefully they've figured out the why of everything and the student knows exactly the goals. I want to get to medical school. I want to do this. I want to be an engineer. By that time, their self-motivation will... Um, help carry them through the day. It's that first year when they're not sure what their motivation is. Right. Um, that is right. one of. I, I wonder. I, I think that's one of our biggest failings in higher education. I I'm convinced that yeah. this first year, the survey courses. I I think that's our biggest failing. Um, Do you see any movement when you talk to your colleagues when you talk to other college leaders? To do you feel like they get it, they get how important that those gen ed is, those foundational courses are, how important excellent teaching is for later success. I think some I think some feel exactly the same way and some I, I think it's all over the spectrum. It's everybody's got their own point of view about it. But as we see across the country the enrollment changes and uh, the financial pressures that institutions face. Um, I think we're going to continue to see more and more schools um, find ways to cut costs. And the first place to cut costs for most of them are these survey courses. I know, and it's so it's so counterproductive. It's, so, it's backwards. I mean, somebody called it, somebody called t- uh, what happens in the classroom the donut hole uh, when in the student success movement. You know, people talk about nudges. They talk about, you know, just in uh, chatbots. They talk about all sorts of things outside of the classroom that that might keep students in college, but they don't really talk about the core of their experience, which is what happens in the classroom day in and day out. What are you learning? Do you feel engaged? Do you feel connected? Do you feel like you belong? Do you feel like you're learning how to do college? Do you feel like you understand why you're there beyond uh, just getting a degree? And I'm not sure those answers are so positive, or at least they're not particularly positive for a, a significant chunk of students, often the most vulnerable students. We've we've spent a lot of effort on retention at Southern Utah University. Our retention rates increased 16% over the last four years. Really proud of what we've done and all these systems, you know, mental health counseling and peer mentoring and improving advising um, having advisors see their job as being outcome-based rather than just answering questions. Uh, Huge. Uh, Super proud of all of the employees that have worked so hard on that. But the core of retention is what's happening in the classroom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's the core. That's the most important part. So um, that's where we should be spending most of our effort. Yeah. Well, and that, that raises another question, is, you know, are colleges bringing faculty members into the conversations around student success and student retention? Or, or, or they, do they just see that as the job of the advisor, right? Right. Or, you know, student affairs office. Um, 
you know, chances are, I, I know sometimes when um, I've talked to, to folks like you who are making an intentional institutional effort to increase uh, retention graduation rates, one of the real eye-opening things is if, if they have the if they have the capacity to look at kind of the, the, the data on different classrooms and they can show faculty members who's not succeeding in your class or who maybe underperformed in your class and the likelihood that they either dropped out after, you know, the next semester or the next year or they dropped the major. Sometimes that data is really eye-opening. And the reason is, you know, faculty members get, get you know, kind of have this very narrow view of just what happened in that course, in that semester. And they don't always see the sequence um, of what happens, you know, once that, that student leaves their class. They don't know that because they struggled in this class, maybe they went on and, and switched majors or, or just left college altogether. And it's not to say that that's specifically a cause and effect, but certainly that could potentially be a contributing to student success. And, and sometimes that's, that's all it takes to see that your role in this ecosystem that can, that can make a convert uh, of some professors to get involved in this, in this discussion. Yeah, and we're, we're really gratified when we come across a faculty member, and there's a lot of them, a lot of them, who recognize that they have a responsibility about the outcomes of their class, not just to stand up, yeah. and, not just to stand up and, and deliver the information, but to recognize that a good teacher is a teacher that leads to good learning. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and then they can be the evangelizers for the for, for that for to, to other faculty members. And, and at Michigan, there's a physics professor, Tim McKay, who had been doing these kinds of uh, teaching, learning experiments, and reforms in, in physics. And he was one of the advocates to turn that kind of effort into a campus-wide effort. So he was the driver for the foundational course initiative. So that's an example of how one person can help magnify that kind of work, and then encourage others to buy into it. I mean, the Michigan approach is kind of, and it takes a village approach, right? That it, these courses are too complex um, for, for a single person or a single department to go it alone, that you actually need a group of people, professors, sometimes students, you know, they've got students involved in this, graduate students. Um, and then you've got, they have a slew of specialists from the, from the teaching and learning center to help work with them. They have a three-year time process because it is so complicated and it takes time to try things and see if they work or crunch the data or survey students or, you know, test interventions. And then in that three-year process, you're thinking collectively, you're thinking collaboratively about what, why do I want to, what do I want to teach? What, what do I want students to get out of this? I mean, faculty members don't always have, or they usually don't have the luxury of time, right? I know I talked to a number of professors and they say when they get together in a department to talk about next semester's intro course, they're usually just asking questions like, oh, what textbook are we going to use? They just don't have the time to think about this. So the Michigan approach, and there are others, you know, we can, there, there's something that the Gardner Institute's doing called the Gateways to Completion. It's a national effort. They're getting people together to kind of clear their desks and to, to make time for this stuff. And if you have the time and you have the support, um, you know, the idea is that you can, you can do some pretty significant things. Uh, to increase the quality of these, these courses and increase, you know, student success. Well, Beth, I think that's a great uh, challenge for um, for me and other administrators to make sure that we create the time and the opportunities and to promote that and to include that in 
advancement and tenure documents and policies so that that everybody realizes that it is a high priority and we're going to value it that way. Uh, This has been a delightful conversation. Thank you so very much. Thank you. I'm really glad I had an opportunity to talk to you all about these issues. And when I take a survey course on uh, writing and journalism, I hope it's you teaching it. (laughs) (laughs) That's my next career. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today, Beth McMurtry. She's a senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Beth talked to us via phone from Washington, D.C. We thank Beth for joining us, and we thank you, our devoted listeners, for tuning in. We'll be back again soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.